0: Remember back when we had that pandemic and the government tried to save the economy by making sure that millions of people who lost their jobs got more benefits? How'd that work out?
1: Usually when people lose their jobs, you know, that's a bad thing for their income, it's a bad thing for their spending. So you typically see that spending goes down substantially when when people become unemployed. That was really like not what happened. During the pandemic, you know, in part because of these expanded generosity of these unemployment insurance benefits.
0: Welcome to the Pie. I'm your host Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie—how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day, seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking back at that time that feels, oh, so long ago, and also like yesterday, the global pandemic. The U.S. government swung into action when the ranks of the unemployed swelled almost beyond recognition. It implemented rescue plans on multiple fronts, including by delivering extra benefits to those who lost their jobs and expanding the pool of people who were eligible for those benefits. Now three years on, economists are continuing to study the effects of that government generosity and figuring out what worked and what didn't. Two of them we had on the show back during the pandemic and we brought them back to talk about their latest research. Peter Ganong is with the Harris School of Public Policy, Joe Vavra is with the Booth School of Business, and the three of us had a chance recently to sit down and chat on campus at the University of Chicago. Well, Peter and Joe, glad to have you back on the show.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a couple of your colleagues here talking about what happened with federal student loan deferments uh, because of the pandemic. And now here, we're going to do the same with unemployment benefits because of the pandemic. Uh, For all its faults, that global catastrophe really was a huge time for data and research, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Like
0: a, a natural experiment.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So I'm gonna ask you to do kind of the same thing that I did ask of your colleagues, which is to take us back ever so briefly to spring of 2020. Take us through what the US government did with the unemployment benefits through the CARES Act. Uh, There were two tracks here, right? Both an increase in the amount of benefits and an expansion of who could get them. Uh, Joe, can you walk us through that?
1: Sure, yeah, so uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, As you said, they kind of implemented both of these things. So on the generosity front, they dramatically expanded the level of benefits that people were eligible for. Um, So early on in the pandemic, they added $600 a week supplements on top of people's regular benefits. So like usually benefits replace about like half your earnings when you lose your job, and they added $600 a week on top of that for everybody who was getting benefits. And then on top of that, they also expanded eligibility to a bunch of people who normally wouldn't. Uh, be able to get benefits at all so this was like through the pandemic unemployment assistance program basically expanding you know primarily to like gig workers and people like that self-employed workers who wouldn't normally be eligible for unemployment insurance
0: and how long did all of this last
1: the supplements this expansion of generosity lasted basically through the summer so expired at the end of july end of july 2020 yeah so the, the end of the first summer of the pandemic Good. okay And the expanded eligibility lasted for substantially longer. So that lasted basically until September of 2021, except there were some states that basically cut off these expanded programs early. So programs kind of came and went over time. So exactly like when stuff started and stopped is a little bit hard to summarize, because it's like $600 supplements lasted through the summer of 2020, and then they expired, and then they implemented $300 supplements in January of 2021. Those lasted until June in some states, they lasted until September in some other states. Um, But broadly, those are the two things they did. And they kind of came and went to different stages of the pandemic.
0: Okay. And Peter, do we have numbers on how many people took advantage of these programs? What did it do to unemployment claims?
2: The number of unemployment claims skyrocketed at peak, I think we had about more than 20 million people who were at any point in time receiving unemployment benefits. One in four working age households told the census that at some point during 2020, they had received unemployment benefits. So even though it didn't touch everyone, it touched a a huge number and a huge share of households. The harder thing to figure out has been exactly which programs people got. Um, And so the best estimates that I'm aware of for this come from the California Policy Lab, which has worked with really detailed data from the state of California. And what they found was that about 40% of people who were getting benefits were getting it through this program that expanded eligibility that mm-hmm. Joe mentioned uh, called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. So just to like try to make very clear what that is, in a normal recession, you have to have had evidence of prior earnings. That you had a job. You had a job, you paid taxes, in- into the fund that covers unemployment benefits from that job. And your employer basically sends a mailer to the government saying, hey, I laid off tests and she's paid into the fund. She's therefore eligible. And so a lot of workers in the pandemic didn't have having paid into the fund plus the layoff notification from their prior employer.
0: If you were a freelancer or you were an Uber driver or anything like that.
2: That's one piece of the story. Another equally big or maybe bigger piece of the story is you were a seasonal worker at Target, and you didn't pay enough into the fund to be eligible for the regular program. So some of it is people who are self-employed or gig workers, but as best as we can tell, at least as many were people who were wage and salary earners, but with relatively little prior earnings and not enough to make it into the regular program. And so in California, which is the place where we have the best data for, for every six workers who had paid enough into the fund and got that layoff notification, there were another four workers who called the state and said, hey, I've become unemployed as a result of the pandemic. And the state looks at their record, you know, checks their notes and says, well, Tess, we have no record of you paying into the funds enough to cover this. And so those workers were the ones who were covered specifically through this extra federal program. And so it almost doubled the size of who was eligible for benefits to have run this extra separate program.
0: And do we have an estimate of what this cost? The united states
1: on the supplement side i don't have an exact final number for like what things came out but at least when we were like doing early estimates i think it was around a half trillion dollars
2: yeah i think that's actually the, the final number that okay. also that yeah. they the bureau of economic analysis came out with so half a trillion in the supplements and then letting benefits run for longer so potentially from as long as april 2020 to um september 2021 and that also cost a lot of money That's the same thing that we've done in every recession since in the post-war period. And so it's not unique to the pandemic response, but it still is a lot of dollars.
0: A lot of money. Okay. Well, let's take a tour um, through some of your key findings in this research. First, the very basic question of did this expansion work to stave off personal financial ruin from job losses? Um, And who benefited the most out of this? Joe?
1: Yeah, so on that front, I mean, what we did to try to like make some sense of that or answer that question is using bank account data where you can kind of observe a snapshot of people's financial conditions and try to get estimates of like what they're spending and what's happening to their income. Um, Using that data, we're basically able to look at the effects on the people who received unemployment insurance through these expanded programs and we saw that there were really like pretty substantial effects on their spending. Usually when people lose their jobs, you know that's a bad thing for their income, it's a bad thing for their spending, so you typically see that spending goes down substantially when when people become unemployed. That was really like not what happened during the pandemic, you know, in part because of these expanded generosity of these unemployment insurance benefits. So if you look at people's income, when they were getting these $600 supplements, those transfers, you know, that that increase in generosity was so large uh, that most people who lost their jobs were actually earning more under unemployment insurance than the earnings they lost from their previous jobs. So their income went up and we saw like pretty remarkably, their spending actually went up at at the same time. So you see these unemployed workers are actually spending more than they were before they lost their jobs. Then... Further on, after the $600 supplements expired, and then they later re-implemented $300 supplements, those were, you know, obviously half as generous, but still, you know, a sizable amount of money. With those supplements in place, again, we saw big effects on spending. It it looks like uh, those supplements kind of, like, return people's spending to around the same levels that they had before they were unemployed. So it looks like it kind of, like, fully succeeded in stabilizing people's uh, spending when it otherwise would have declined.
0: So it did its job. And then some, um, possibly.
1: Yeah, it did its job, and then you know probably more than its job early on in the you know early stages of the pandemic, and then I think an active debate through today is the extent to which later on, as the economy started to recover, like did we in some sense provide maybe too much stimulus? Uh, did we send out transfers that were too large? People accumulated lots of savings spending was you know well above trend still is well above trend through now you know how much of those effects like generated inflation versus kind of other more uh like supply side driven disruptions you know the effects of the pandemic itself and supply chain disruptions and things like that
0: and what about uh the other part of my question which was do we know who benefited the most from this expansion
1: I mean so I think in in kind of a mechanical sense I mean it's going to be the lowest income workers who benefited the most because of the fact that this $600 supplement was just a flat supplement so the same amount to all workers so $600 is going to be a larger share of your income if you're a low wage worker than if you're a high wage worker
2: there's one other uh, like I think really remarkable statistic that speaks a little bit to who benefited which is there's pretty much an iron law that When more people become unemployed, the number of people or the share of people who are behind on their mortgage payments goes up. And you can see that in basically any post-war U.S. data set looking over time or looking across space, except during the pandemic, where the number of people who are unemployed skyrocketed and the number or the share of people who are behind on their mortgages actually went down.
0: Because they had money to pay.
2: I mean, there, there, well, there's I mean, a bunch of technical details in there, but at a very high level, we broke the historic link between unemployment and being behind on your mortgage for a number of reasons, of which, like, one of the most important ones, in my view, is the fact that there are big subsidies to the unemployed.
1: You know, combined with the fact that we also had, like, specific sort of policies that intervened in mortgage markets and things like that to make it, you know, so people could, like, pause mortgage payments in certain situations.
0: So. That was one effect on the macro economy, right? If more people are able to pay their mortgages, uh, what else did recipients do with their money? And what what kind of macroeconomic effect did we see with that, Joe?
1: That's something that we've been kind of exploring more recently with uh, more disaggregated versions of our analysis of spending effects. And on that front, um, you know, we've looked at like kind of different categories of spending uh, as well as things like payments on debt and stuff like that. I mean, I think like broadly the way of summarizing stuff is in the end, like there's not any particularly surprising patterns. The things that people spent their unemployment benefits on seem like they're the same things that people, you know, generally spent their money on. So, And, and that kind of like varies over time throughout the pandemic. So like early on, you know, in, in the spring of 2020 at the height of the pandemic, when these first $600 supplements came out you know, a lot of that spending kind of disproportionately went to things like home improvement and stuff like that. But that's also kind of like mirrors aggregate spending patterns during that time. So there was a big decline in spending on travel and hotels and things like that. So people early on were not spending their unemployment benefits on those types of things. But that's because, you know,
0: they were spending based on being at home.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and then later on, as you go into 2021, especially into the summer of 2021, spending starts to shift more towards like service oriented things and Broadly, yeah, again, like if you just kind of look at the aggregate composition of spending and how that changed over time, it kind of looks like that's also basically how unemployed people were spending their money.
0: So, Peter, is it fair to say then that this expansion of unemployment benefits did serve to help prop up the economy at a time when it could have crashed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that exactly as Joe said, it was successful and perhaps too successful for the particular moment. I'm, there's one other like aspect of the expansion that I want to focus on uh, where you're asking about sort of like who, who received different funds and different yeah. consequences. Um, so historically, black and Hispanic workers have been less likely to be eligible for benefits, and also even among the eligibles, in some cases less likely to claim benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can talk at some length about what are all the historical reasons why that's the case. But the particularly interesting thing about the pandemic is that the federal program for the people who were not eligible for regular benefits functioned as sort of a safety net within the safety net. Or you could think of it maybe as like the ocean behind the swimming pool, such that people who would have fallen through the cracks of the regular safety net still got benefits from this alternative program. There were a bunch of positive racial equity impacts that came out of the pandemic unemployment expansions, not just being progressive in terms of income, but also in terms of systematically including people who are usually disenfranchised by the unemployment insurance system.
0: So Joe, you touched on this earlier, and I want to follow up a little bit. One of the big debates I remember uh, over the size of this expansion was the idea that because people were getting more money than they were making in their jobs, that this would somehow be a disincentive to return to the job market. Um, can you give us a reality check of what happened there?
1: Yeah, so I think that was indeed, you know, a big potential concern of having this very generous policy. We tried to analyze the effects of this. And, you know, maybe surprisingly, like we found that these effects actually weren't that big on people's kind of propensities to go back to work. It doesn't look like this actually, in the end, had like uh, very large deterrent, deterrent effects on unemployment. So we kind of like had a bunch of different research strategies to try to, to get at these effects. They all lead to this consistent conclusion that indeed there were some effects, like it looks like, you know, there were some people out there who were less likely to go back to work. But if you're thinking about overall aggregate trends in employment and job finding and things like that during the pandemic, uh, it looks like this was not like a, a major drag on the economy, a major drag on employment.
0: Your research also looked into uh, some of the problems that cropped up, cropped up meaning exploded uh, in in the government's ability to deliver these benefits. Um, It was a little bit like, I don't know, putting an elephant on a small scale, right? You you could almost hear the out of date computers just creaking under the weight of, and under the, the strain of this program. So can you talk a little bit about, how significant that was, and the effect of that on how the programs worked. Peter?
2: So that's a, a great question. We're still picking up the pieces. We know that funds got out the door slowly, so many people who were unemployed and filed claims you know, usually might wait two to four weeks, instead waited eight weeks or 16 weeks. There were big mistakes where they made big overpayments or underpayments, which then you know, man, result manifest themselves as delays. One of the saddest things from my perspective is, you know, we stress tested the system and we saw exactly as you said, just how creaky it was. And, you know, the Department of Labor has put about $2 billion into modernization, but we haven't seen wholesale political will or big investment made by the states. And so, you know, you just test drove this thing and it kind of crashed. Yeah. Usually that's the time when you wanna like do all the Go repairs. Go into the auto body shop. Is, yeah. Right. And so, the Department of Labor, my understanding, has made a bunch of efforts and strides, but we haven't seen governors be particularly focused on taking their UI systems to the auto body shop in the way that uh, I would I would have hoped to see.
0: So if pandemic round two comes along, it probably isn't gonna be much better.
1: Nope, but
2: you know, unemployment is low right now. So if
1: it just stays that way forever, then we're good to go.
0: I'm sure it will stay that way forever, Joe. <laughs> Looking at the crystal ball. Um, All right, so let's talk about some of the policy conclusions out of all of this. Obviously, we all hope that there is never a similar reason for the expansion of benefits like we had in 2020. Um, But given that this was this kind of natural experiment that fell into the laps of of economists like you, what did you learn? Joe? I think one
1: lesson that we can potentially draw from this episode is... um, if you want to think about kind of like one of the roles of the, the government in trying to fight recessions is like kind of getting money out into the economy and trying to boost demand and boost economic activity when, it, when there's otherwise a shortfall. Uh, temporary expansions in unemployment generosity might be a good way of doing that. Um, so the temporary aspect here kind of being pretty important, uh, you know, coming back to these reasons for why the disincentive effects were sort of low. You know, I think the concern is if you give really gener- generous unemployment benefits and you make those last for a really long time, then indeed that might deter labor market activity and sort of be a drag on the economy. But if you make these benefits not last for very long, then the disincentive effects of those policies are going to be smaller, but yet you're still giving money out uh, to people who are kind of disproportionately likely to spend it. Our evidence sort of shows that these unemployed workers you know, are particularly likely to spend these benefits when they receive them you know, in part because they would otherwise, you know, not have very much money. And so they're, you know, in financial distress, they're likely to spend this this money when they get it. So temporary expansions of unemployment insurance benefits are likely to have this kind of stabilizing effect on the economy, where the disincentive effects on labor markets could be small, while the beneficial effects on getting dollars out into the economy might be particularly large.
2: Just, just to put a fine point on it, suppose for a second, test that you... You or whoever is president when the unemployment rate goes up. It's
0: definitely going to be me.
2: President Viglin goes on TV and says, I don't care at all about people who are unemployed. That is to say, I care equally about people who are employed and unemployed. I want to do something that's going to help everyone in the macro economy. That hypothetical made up president, uh, villain President <laughs> Viglin, that I just invented would still do severance payments to unemployed workers, not because... You know, you've already taken the position that you don't care about unemployed workers intrinsically, but just because they're more likely to spend it. And so it's just a more effective way to get money into the economy. Now, of course, you might have other motives and you might pursue a different policy. But the point is, like, even my hypothetical president who doesn't care at all about the unemployed, our estimates imply that they should still do severance pay just for the macroeconomy. Um, and so that's sort of a unique just
0: to keep the engines humming. exactly
2: and so it's a unique way of thinking about or a new unique motive for doing ui stabilization that's sort of separate from the or separate or really in addition into an additive to individuals being in need because they just lost their jobs
0: you know when we think of this kind of huge sweeping change that happened during and because of a global pandemic I wonder if it prompts a question of how significant an event needs to be to warrant that kind of change in the future. So when we look at expanding unemployment benefits, how do you know when this level of change is necessary? Probably not a mild recession, right? So what do you base it on? Job loss predictions?
1: I mean, I think ideally we would tie, I mean, the exact like mechanics of which particular kind of indicators we want to base policy on, I think that's a difficult question that would take kind of more work. I think something I feel more confident on is that it's better to try to like think carefully about those kinds of questions in advance and try to construct policies that are in some sense going to be automatically in place and are going to be more mechanical rather than having to sort of scramble and debate and have policy discussions in real time about like, you know, what sort of responses should should we be making? Because I think what that leads to is, you know, a lot of political debate, a lot of, you know, not well thought through policies, uh, where you're just kind of doing things in like an ad hoc way. And I think those policies are likely to be less well designed than something that you you construct in advance. So, you know, is the right policy like triggers like the unemployment rate or is it some other measure of labor markets that I currently don't have like a strong stand on, but I feel confident that we should be con- constructing some sort of like automatic triggers in some sort of way where, you know, however we want to kind of view these trade-offs that we should make
2: them like more automatic and less ad hoc. There's a super wonky thing I can tell you about related to this triggers question. There was a proposal in the wake of the pandemic, which was not passed, by Senator Wyden to set up a automatic triggers where the level of benefits would vary with the unemployment rate. What I did in, um, in a paper with uh, John Gruber and Gabriel Chodro Reich, so two, two Chicago economists, is we did basically like a backcasting exercise. We said, what if you took the triggers that Senator Wyden had proposed and ran them over the last 20 prior years. What would the world have looked like if we'd had these automatic triggers in place instead of the sort of thing that Congress ended up at haphazardly, as Joe noted? And what we found from that paper is that where you would have ended up if you had done the triggers is actually very similar in terms of the amount of money you sent out the door to what Congress did do. So basically, over the last 20 years, Congress got us to a similar place to what the trigger proposals on the table now do, it was just a much, much messier process. And so there's sort of like a glass half full and glass half empty to this analysis. So the the glass half full is, you know, well, isn't it great that like, what what do we need these they automatic did so business for? Well. They, did, they did just as well as the, they did just as well to be, well here is defined as sending out money when the unemployment rate is high and not sending it out when the unemployment rate is low, which is one notion of doing well, um, or sending out extra money, I should say. And the other is that, you know, there's a lot of blood and guts that was spilled to get those extensions passed haphazardly. And further, one of the reasons why Congress hasn't passed a Triggers proposal is a very wonky one, which is, uh, you know, the Congressional Budget Office is asked, well, how much is it going to cost if we promise to do a lot of expansions of benefits when the unemployment rate rises? And, you know, they look at this and they say, well, you know, unlike Joe, they don't have faith that the unemployment rate's gonna be constant forever. Uh, Joe was joking, obviously, <laughs> just to be clear for sure. listeners. And so they say, Well, yeah, we know the unemployment rate's gonna go up and that's gonna cost a a boatload of money. And then Congress turns around and says, well, if the budget office said this is going to cost a boatload of money, we don't want to add any money to the deficit. And so then it becomes de- It became because of this debt on arrival. But of course, we know that we are going to spend the money because we have spent the money in past recessions. And so the true cost of setting up triggers is zero. And this is a case where basically attention to the scores from the budget office has really like misled politicians about the right decision because they've looked at this big price tag and said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. But But you already did it before. You did it before. You're going to do it anyway. Why not do it without the blood and guts and also potentially with some improved predictability for households? So it's one of these things where that's the glass half empty is that... The budget office is doing their job of what their rules are, but then the politicians are sort of misinterpreting the lessons from the budget office.
0: And completely forgetting
2: history. And, I mean, improved predictability for the
1: deficit itself, too, right? I mean, you want to, like, have honest predictions about, like, what the actual deficits are and, like, plan tax and spending policies like according to like what we're actually going to do and not some alternative thing which is you know not what we're going to do
2: right and so before i guess i imagined that there was like a hypothetical grad student who was hustling out there and i said (laughs) oh well the main thing you know what you should really do is look into this expansion of eligibility that was really novel so if instead now for the sort of hypothetical congressional staffer who's thinking about you know where to go with safety net programs basically these trigger programs cost much less in reality than the budget office scores them as. And so then now is as good of a time of any to get it set up.
0: Well, Peter, Joe, uh, I remember talking with you three years ago when we were in the middle of all this. I was in my uh, closet. Uh, I, I, I was too. I don't know if Joe was either, but we were, we were all in our homes and it's really, really nice to see you in person this time. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks.
0: The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.